Open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Samuel 16. What makes a good leader? How would you define it? A recent survey found that over 50% of people felt that a good leader was a strategic thinker. Nearly 30% said that a good leader was energetic and enthusiastic. Nearly the same amount said decisiveness makes a good leader, someone who makes decisions quickly. Still others said knowledge, independent thinking wasn't easily influenced. Pressure-oriented, thrived under pressure. Embraces change. Ambitious was another sign of a good leader. What makes a good leader? What kind of leader do you want to follow? Now, we know leaders are meant to be followed, hence the name leader. They're meant to be followed. And so we can also assume then the people answering the question, what makes a good leader, are also saying, this is the kind of leader I want to follow. In other words, I want to be like that. Or maybe in the context of a company or something else, I want our company to emulate those characteristics of that leader. We want to be decisive. We want to be independent thinking. We want to thrive under pressure. We want to embrace change. We want to be ambitious. We want to become a company like that. In our passage this morning, God is selecting a new leader for His kingdom. So God is going to answer the survey question Himself. And we're going to find out in this passage, what does God think makes a good leader? What kind of leader does He think is best for His people? So let's read in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 1 to 23. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The Bethlehemite. Let's try that again. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. 
And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy and had, a beautiful, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, to his, son, David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that we may understand it, that we may seek to apply it. Give us help. Break through the exterior of our heart where we're harboring sin. Find all of those dark recesses in our hearts where sin is hiding. Reveal that to us. Reveal to us places where we fail to trust you and your leadership over us. Grant us repentance, we pray, that we may honor and revere and cherish your word that is before us. Apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything that you see in First and Second Samuel has connection in one way or another back all the way to the beginning to the prayer of Hannah at the beginning of the book. Now, you may remember, Hannah, it's been some time since we went through that passage all the way back in chapter 1 and 2, but Hannah was a, a one of two wives of a man named Elkanah, and Hannah was barren, and the other wife, Penina, was fertile myrtle, and Penina used to remind Hannah all the time of just how fertile she actually was, and how Hannah must have been uh, despised of the Lord because obviously God had closed her womb. In fact, the author of 1 Samuel reminds us the Lord had closed Hannah's womb and hadn't given her a child. So at the beginning of the book, 
Hannah is in this very lowly position where you're left to think God has somehow forgotten about her. She is rejected. And Penina, quite the opposite, is having tons of kids, kids all the time. And so she is to be seen as blessed from the Lord. She's in a very strong position. Now remember, Hannah is in that lowly position when she prays in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Finally, the Lord has given her a child, and out of her joy in having a child, she prays this prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and she prays about His kingdom now coming. And it's seen in the fact that she's having a child. Now, I want to read this passage just to remind you, just to refresh our memory about what Hannah prays. And I want you to pay attention as we do and look at all the reversals that are happening in this passage. All the reversals that Hannah is drawing your attention to as God fulfills His kingdom. Listen to this, and it's going to appear on the screen behind me. It should. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. All right, here we go. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Another one. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Here's another one. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Side eye at you, Panina. Verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For, listen to this, not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. You see all of the reversals that are happening there in that prayer. So Hannah, first of all, is seeing that the birth of her child is a sign of what the Lord is doing in His kingdom. He is turning the world upside down, quite literally. All those who were proud before are now being humbled, and all those who are humbled, He is exalting to a high and lofty position. He is raising the poor from the dust, but He's bringing the strong to a lowly position. But this is also the way we understand what's happening throughout the entire book. Everything we see is actually this process playing out where the high and lofty are being humbled and the low are being brought high. You see, Israel, just a few chapters later, we find out Israel is really wanting to be the strong ones. They're wanting to be the mighty ones. They're wanting to dominate. 
which we've already seen from Hannah's prayer, is not a good thing. And here are the the children of Israel who are fighting in battle who want to bring the ark out to fight the battle with the Philistines. And ultimately, they lose. And later, they tell Samuel, look, this isn't working out for us. This whole judge arrangement is not working out for us. We want a king that's going to go out to battle for us. We want a big guy. We want somebody really strong to sort of clog up the middle and block the run. You know what I'm saying? We want somebody to go up there and make some tackles and kill some people. We want some people to lead us into battle. So God tells Samuel to give in to their demands and appoint them a king. Give them what they want, a king. And so he anoints Saul. And Saul is exactly what they're looking for. He, is the, he checks all the boxes. He's a man who's head and shoulders above the rest. He's a bit of a coward, sure, but he's actually very mighty in battle a lot of times. He comes out and fights, and he has this sort of mighty streak within him. He leads them in battle. They have many victories, many military victories. But in spite of the privileged position that Saul has, Saul refuses to obey God. It's a huge problem, isn't it? Saul refuses to obey God. And he'd rather listen to the voices of those around him. Well, the passage in front of us is going to play out the way Hannah prophesied that it would. Not by might shall a man prevail. That's the theme of her prayer. Not by might shall a man prevail. And we're going to see that play out. But later she says, but God will give strength to his king. And if you're going to summarize this chapter, it would be those words by Hannah. Not by might shall man prevail, but God will give strength to his king. Saul has been rejected by God already, and this morning God is appointing Samuel to anoint a new king in his place. And so this passage is going to show us two things. First, God governs his kingdom by his spirit, working through humble hearts. God governs His kingdom by His Spirit, working through humble hearts. Samuel is obviously taking the rejection very hard. We see here at the beginning of chapter 16 that he's grieving over what's taken place. And now on the surface of the text, as we've read through 1 Samuel, you might be inclined to think that Samuel and Saul don't have that great of a relationship, that their relationship seems to be a bit cold, And they have very few interactions. Some of them are very negative interactions, including the last time they interacted. Samuel just cut to the chase and just said, God has appointed somebody better than you to lead his kingdom. So it seems very cold, but obviously Samuel has a very close connection with Saul. In some ways, almost sees Saul like a son to him. And he's grieved over it, much like God was grieved over over Saul's sin. Nevertheless, he's grieving, and as he's grieving, God interrupts his grief with a command, and he says, fill your horn with oil and go. And we know that a member of Jesse's family is going to be anointed as king over Israel, though we don't know yet who that is in the passage. There is this initial problem, however, and that is, if Saul knows Samuel's whereabouts and knows what he's doing, and puts two and two together, 
then he's going to put Samuel to death. And so like millions of missionaries have done ever since, there is devised a plan to sort of masquerade what he's actually doing with what his secondary task is. Now, his primary task is to go and anoint David as king. His secondary task is to take a sacrifice there and hide everything under the shroud of a sacrifice. So the elders of the city, they come out and they're trembling. Look, Samuel has a reputation for bringing some judgment down on people. And so it's right that they would be trembling. So they come out there and they're like, what are you doing here? Bethlehem is a tiny little town, and what has, have we done to bring Samuel the prophet to us? So they're, they're, they're nervous, and they come out to him, and they say, Look, what, what, what have we done? What are you here for? Is it for peace or, or not? And he says, Look, I'm here in peace. I'm, I'm bringing a sacrifice. And, and the, the sacrifice is enough to satisfy their curiosity. So he grabs Jesse's family and, and prepares them for the sacrifice. And what he's really doing is going through and meeting all the children so he can tell whether or not this is the one that the Lord has appointed. So as Jesse's family comes to the sacrifice, Samuel begins looking over his sons. And some of them, let's just say, are quite impressive. He gets to Eliab the oldest, who must have, must have been just a really tall, hulking guy. Because Samuel is obviously very impressed by him. He's tall, he's probably strong. We know he's in the military, because we see that in the next chapter. The oldest three sons are in the military, at least. And so, we see him, he's in the military. We know he's, a, he's already got that box checked. And so Samuel is clearly impressed, and it's even got Samuel thinking... Well, this must be the guy. This is obviously him. But this is where we get a very important statement as far as an understanding of how all of this is going to work. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. So, so first, the correction to Samuel is really important. Even Samuel is capable of making mistakes, and he makes one here. His frame of reference for what it means to actually be king over Israel, or what it means to actually be a leader, is something akin to what they've already got in Saul. That's what he thinks a king really is. It's someone who's tall, someone who's strong, someone who is a real specimen to lead the people into battle. Isn't that what God is going to choose? It's what He chose the first time. But remember, the current king, Saul, is certainly a king, but he's made after the image of the people. In the people's mind, they have what makes a king. And God gave them that picture exactly. He checked all the people's boxes. So he was one that fit the battle plan because size and strength was what mattered most for going into battle. Because isn't it the strong that survive? Isn't that who thrives in God's kingdom? So it gave people confidence to know that they were following a man of impressive strength. In the next chapter, we're going to see that the Philistines were also impressed by their man of stature. 
And that's the reason they were following him. So it's the way the rest of the world thought about leadership, about what it means to be a king. But what's second here that's really important is that the Lord's framework is what actually matters here. What's his thought on what makes a king? When it came to the last king, it was a checklist for the people, what they were looking for. But when it comes to God's choice for a king, his checklist looks much different than mankind's. You see, God, as it turns out, is looking for what's inside of a man. The heart of a man is his chief concern. So this helps us as we're thinking about David coming forth and being a king. It makes a profound statement on whomever that crown lands on. Whomever it is that God actually chooses, we understand then what is true about his heart. God is making a statement in choosing his king as to what's inside that person. We're getting a glimpse into what's inside David. So son after son of Jesse is paraded in front of him. Everybody's looking at him, and none of them fit the bill. The bill. And so finally, it is revealed that Jesse has one other son. But you wouldn't be interested in him. He's a tiny little guy. He's out there watching the sheep, and there's nothing impressive about him. So Samuel says, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. You think four songs is bad. I hear you. I understand. You think four of them bad? All right, what if we did that, huh? We're not going to rest until he gets here. All right, so they, they're standing the whole time, and finally David arrives, and he's precisely the one that God has chosen for the task of leading God's people. And so Samuel anoints him. But this scene solves two questions for us as we begin to think about what God's kingdom is like. The first question is, how does God's kingdom function? How does God's kingdom actually function? And if you trace these series of events that led up to the anointing of David as king, you'll see that it's God that prompts Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go. He interrupts Samuel's grief and he says, enough with the weeping, grab your horn, fill it with oil, and go. It's God that does that. Samuel's lamenting all of Saul's failures. God stirs him to action. Then it's God who devises the scheme because Samuel gives a rebuttal. I can't leave because if I do, then Saul's going to kill me. And God is the one who devises the scheme to keep Samuel's actions out of the view of Saul to preserve his life. It's God who steps in then to the mind of Samuel as he's thinking, Eliab looks pretty awesome. He's huge and strong and, and he's got to be the king. It's God that steps in there and he says, no, what are you thinking? It is not by might that a man shall prevail. So if Samuel had paid attention to what his mama had prayed all those many years ago, he would know might is not the key. So God steps in and corrects Samuel in his way of thinking. That outside stuff is of no account. So then how does the kingdom of God function? We get the answer in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
Here's how God's kingdom actually works. It functions by the movement of His Holy Spirit. God's kingdom functions by the movement of His Holy Spirit. Now this statement is really important as a way of helping the reader interpret what's happening here. There's a spirit that is rushing upon someone. In this case, David. And when the spirit rushes upon someone, what it does is explains to us how they're able to perform the functions that follow. Throughout the book of Judges, this phrase, the Spirit rushed upon him, is used to describe Samson. You remember Samson? Samson was, had impossible strength, just incredible strength. How did he have that kind of strength? Did he have access to weights that nobody else did? Was he able to? No, not at all. How was he able to do some of the superhuman things that he was able to do? Well, the way the author of the book of Judges describes it to us is, the Spirit rushed upon Samson, and it gave him a supernatural ability. That ability didn't come from his muscles. He wasn't just some impressively strong guy. It was the Spirit of God that empowered him to do what he was able to do. It wasn't a natural ability. It was a supernatural ability from the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. But it's also used to explain what happened to Saul. Remember, Saul is named king, and he's able then to prophesy because the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Or then when it comes time to judge the Ammonites and unite all of Israel underneath him to go and fight the Ammonites, there is the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul again. So the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon someone means deliverance for the nation of Israel. It means deliverance for God's people. So as it turns out, what actually matters in the anointing of a king? Is it his impressive size? Is it his impressive strength? Maybe his good looks or his ruddiness? Maybe it's how people, other people think of him? Absolutely not. What the author is telling us is that the way the kingdom of God functions is by the governance of the Spirit of the Lord. When the Lord rushes upon someone with His Spirit, that man is able to govern His people. As we'll see in the next chapter, it has nothing to do with David's impressive size or his strength or his ability for war. In fact, when he shows up on the field of battle, he's despised initially. Now, the Lord's choosing David and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and it says something significant about this young man who is to be king and it answers a second question for us. The second question is, who belongs as king over God's kingdom? Who belongs as king over God's kingdom? What we find out is, the man who belongs as king over God's kingdom is materially different on the inside. That person has to be different, has to be made of different stuff. Now, I want to be careful here because we also know that David is a sinner. I don't want to make David into something that he's not. He's not God incarnate, as we'll find later. David is a sinner like you and me. David himself says this in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that his mother was sinning in conceiving him, but that he was, she was a sinner and so was therefore he. 
So when God identifies the heart of David as materially different than Saul, He actually already told us what that meant. And He told us that in, in, in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 to 14. Look with me there. 1 Samuel 13, 13 to 14. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Look at what he says. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You understand? How Saul and David are different to be made after his own heart means that he, and to be materially different on the inside, means that he's looking to follow after the Lord's commands, which is precisely the opposite of what Saul is. Saul has no desire to follow after the Lord's commands, and David, it seems, does. So, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? It means that his desire is to obey, he wants to obey God. Saul doesn't have that. Sure, he checked the outward appearances that Israel was looking for. But they're now beginning to see what all of those outward appearances really got them. They're still under the oppression of the enemy, of the Philistines. They're still following this king who doesn't seem to want to obey the Lord's commands. And it hasn't brought them any kind of freedom, any kind of military victory. The one who belongs, it turns out, as king over God's kingdom is the truly humble one. That means the one who submits his every decision, his every desire to the will of God. But now I want you to see the second part of this passage. God governs his kingdom by confounding the proud. God governs his kingdom by confounding the proud. Not only does the Spirit of the Lord rush upon David, but then it says that very same Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord comes to torment him. If Saul was in modern times, he would no doubt be surrounded by tons of psychologists and psychiatrists who are prescribing all kinds of medicine for him and diagnosing him as a classic case of bipolar disorder. One minute he's fine, the next he's irrational, he's prone, they would probably say, to manic episodes. Classic in a bipolar case. And some even read back into the text, modern psychology, into this passage and say what Saul has there, though they might not have known it then, is bipolar disorder. But you see, the author of the text actually tells us exactly what Saul had. That this was a product of spiritual intervention. This was a spiritual case that he had. It was actually a spirit, he doesn't say the spirit, it's a spirit from the Lord, intended to drive Saul mad. Now, let me say one caveat, okay? Because I know I'm going to hear it, or I'm going to receive an email, alright? That's not to say that every mental or psychological issue is a demon. Alright? 
That's not what that means. It's not to say that. It means exactly as much as what it says. That in Saul's case, this was a spiritual issue. This was not a mental disorder. This was a spiritual issue. It was a harmful spirit sent from the Lord to torment him. That's as much as it tells us. And we might think, well, what does all that mean? I will tell you again. This was a harmful spirit sent from the Lord to torment him. How much can we understand from that? We can understand that this was a harmful spirit from the Lord sent to torment him. We savvy? We good? So the solution by the people that are around Saul is to bring a musician in that might soothe him when he's thrown into these fits of rage by this spirit. And wouldn't you know, they just, out of all the people in Israel, they happen to find the one on whom the Spirit of God rests, and that is David. Now, tell me, what are the odds of that? I mean, seriously, of all the men in all of the nation of Israel, they just happen to find David? What continues to be clear is that God is the one governing these actions of the people around Saul, bringing David to their attention and ensuring that he is placed in the court of the king. So David enters into Saul's service. He becomes his armor bearer. He works his way right up the ranks, becomes his armor bearer, and he finds favor in Saul's sight. And Jesse says, go forth and conquer. Let's him go. Now, we cannot see this as merely coincidental that David, the anointed one, has found favor in Saul's sight and is brought into Saul's court. No. God is the one, we're told, that has confounded Saul, who has been very proud, who has been the epitome of proud. He has seen his people around him as making wiser decisions than God. He has heard the voice inside his own head that, and instead of obeying God has chosen to listen to it instead. That is the definition of pride. And so God has driven him mad. He's confounded the proud. And yet at the same time, God has also mercifully supplied the remedy to Saul's spiritual torment. Some of you may want to ask, why is it that the liar soothes the, the harmful spirit that God has given to Saul? Is there something about demonology that we can understand from this? That someone's possessed by a demon, what you really need is the liar, and you can break it out and start playing it, and it'll soothe the person? No. It means that God has mercifully supplied to Saul a remedy. He's not just tormented him. He has also supplied the remedy in David. So you understand, God is still being merciful to this ultimately proud person who refuses to obey God's commands. He's not only confounding Saul, he's also treating him mercifully. He could leave him to his insanity. He could even kill him. He could drive him further off the cliff, but he doesn't. Instead, he sends David to minister to him in his time of need. But understand that what we saw in the first part of the passage was the lowly person, David, who's the littlest of his family, out in the middle of a field watching some sheep, not even seen worthy enough to come to the sacrifice. 
out there in the middle of the field, exalted to a position of court musician, then armor bearer, and even king. And the exalted person, Saul, being brought low to a place of spiritual torment, a paranoid schizophrenic. The low is being exalted and the exalted are being brought low. And in all of this, we're clearly to understand what the, the Lord is doing. His Spirit rushes upon David. His Spirit leaves Saul and His Spirit comes to torment him. But Hannah told us that this is what the Lord was up to at the very beginning of the book. Remember she said, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, Saul. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt his, the horn of His anointed. Just precisely what He's doing in the transition between Saul and David. Saul's being brought low by the Lord. And the reason that he's being brought low is precisely because of his foolishness and hubris. He refused to obey the Lord. He refused to hear His commands. His heart was not inclined to. He wanted to listen to all the voices of those around him rather than the Lord's. But David is being exalted because the Lord is setting a pattern for what his king and his kingdom will actually look like and will actually function like. Will it be the strong that take a place of prominence in God's kingdom? No. It will actually be the humble who follow after his commands. The king that will rule over God's people, God is stating here, unequivocally, the king that's to rule over God's people must have a heart whose desire is to follow the Lord's commands. He must be one on whom God's Spirit rests and never departs. Now, David will, of course, serve the Lord and follow after Him, though he will rule imperfectly. He will make some terrible decisions sometimes. But David gives Israel the understanding of what is actually required of the king. Their checkboxes are about to be all erased, as we'll see in the next chapter. You could never defeat Goliath. Come on. That's ridiculous. All of their checkboxes are going to come collapsing down. He's going to give Israel the understanding of what's actually required of the king. What kind of king God's people actually need. If we go forward in the Old Testament, Israel's going to get into a lot of trouble. You know. They're going to be exiled. And a little prophet by the name of Isaiah is going to come along. And he's going to write this massive book. In the first part of the book, He's going to talk about what their trip into exile is going to look like. And then from chapter 40 on, he's going to talk about what restoration looks like for their kingdom. By the time you get to chapter 61 of Isaiah, Isaiah is setting out what that king that's coming is actually going to look like. You're in the midst of exile. You're in captivity. You think there is absolutely no way that the Lord could ever rescue you out there in Babylon. But let me tell you what the king is going to look like. And here's how Isaiah describes him in Isaiah 61, 1-3. Listen to this. Pay really close attention. It's going to appear on the screen behind me. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is describing the person who is, is coming to rescue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Think about Hannah's prayer here. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You see the reversal there? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of, uh-oh, here it is, ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. You see how Isaiah, some hundreds of years after Hannah, their, both their messages are coming in dovetailing into one person. How he's going to lift up the needy from the ash heap. How he's going to bring down those who are boastful and proud. And he's going to establish his people forever. This is the king, Isaiah is saying, that God's people actually need. One on whom the Spirit of the Lord God rests who comes to bring good news, who comes to bring, who bind up the, uh, the brokenhearted, to take away the ashes of the mourner, one who brings actual, real salvation to his people. That's the kind of king they need. The, king, the kind of salvation that will bring the Lord's favor to them and vengeance to their enemies. They need justice. They need someone who's going to rescue them from the ash heap, who's going to establish them as oaks of righteousness, and who at the same time is going to judge their enemies. The king God's people need is one like Hannah prayed for all those years before. One who will rise up the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but that king came. And when finally that king does come, he is also just by sheer coincidence, born in Bethlehem. Wouldn't you know? The city of David. He's also born of David's kingly line. What are the odds of that? As he begins his ministry, shortly after his baptism, where the dove, or the Holy Spirit, descends like a dove on him, he attends a synagogue on a Sabbath day. This is a story we find in Luke. He attends this synagogue on Sabbath day, and wouldn't you know, that day, he happens to be asked to read. And wouldn't you know, as luck would have it, they happen to give him the scroll of Isaiah. So Luke tells us in Luke 4, 17-21, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Hey, isn't that the passage we just read out of Isaiah? 
This is the time of the year that we turn our attention to the incarnation of Jesus. It's that time in human history when God the Son took on flesh and became human. You know, it's possible that you go through the entire Christmas season and maybe even celebrate the coming of Christ and totally miss the reason that He came. Now, if the world gives a mention to Jesus, they normally say something, which is rare, I grant you, but they normally say something like, He came to give us something to emulate. Boiling the Incarnation down to a motivational poster. To the world, that's what Jesus is. He's just a motivational poster. There's power in humility. And cheesy things like that. But understand, kings, particularly kings God appoints, are meant to save. The human kings before Jesus are meant to expose their need for salvation. And the fact that none of them fit the bill, precisely. But kings are meant to save. Saul gave partial deliverance from the Ammonites, rescued his people there. David saved his people from the Philistines. They didn't have those enemies. Solomon comes in and it says God gave him rest from all their enemies. But no mere human king was able to save God's people from his greatest enemy, which is his own heart. None of the kings could do that. The king Isaiah longed for, if you pay really close attention to what he said in chapter 61, the king that we find uniquely in Jesus is one who proclaims the good news to the poor and, remember what he said, the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he's proclaiming to the poor. That's what he's proclaiming to those in captivity. The year of the Lord's favor. The one who brings salvation to his people. The one who rescues us from our sin. Friends, the good news of Christmas is that 2,000 years ago, God gave us precisely the king we needed. Not first a king with a battle axe in his hand, but a king who came to die for his people, to save his people from their sins. Not first a king who was of impressive birth and impressive size and impressive strength and power. Not of comely appearance that we should look upon him, but one born in a lowly manger to a virgin who was pregnant with child someone she was not married to. Was rejected from even the inn where they sought refuge. It was a king, though, who would take the punishment that his people deserved on his own shoulders that they might have eternal life. Now, if polled, if we put the poll out to a church to the people of Israel, to whomever has been considered God's people. They would tell you what exactly they wanted in a king. One who was tall. David was short. One who was strong. David was small. 
One who was a military leader. David was a shepherd. One who was weapons trained and battle hardened. David wrote poetry and played the lyre. Though he, he was pretty deadly with a slingshot. Right? I grant you that. And he does come to be known as a man of war for sure. Even in this passage identified that way. As people, we want power. We want might. Even when we look for leaders, be they political or otherwise, we want and we're inclined and we're drawn towards a strong man. Someone who will take down the wicked. But you understand, that doesn't even make God's requirements for leadership material. It doesn't even make the list of what leadership material actually is. God's leader is one on whom His Spirit rests. So if we're answering the question, what does a real leader of God's people look like? It's one on whom His Spirit rests. It's one whose heart follows His commands. It's one who's truly loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful, self-controlled. But not only is this character of the king that's, is this the character of the king that's fit to rule his kingdom, this is also the direction he's leading his people to. Isn't that the reason we identify the leadership characteristics? Someone who's really thought-provoking, who's ingenious, who, who has all these characteristics that we want. Isn't that because that's the kind of people or company or whatever we want to be? Well, where is God leading His people to? Look at the King. Look at the King He chooses. That'll tell you exactly where He's leading His church. So now, as followers of Christ, He's given us, His church body, the beneficiaries of His salvation. He's given us His Spirit. Not only has He given Christ His Spirit, but then He gave us His Spirit. So what does it look like then for us to follow the leader, Jesus? What does it look like for us to be influenced by His Spirit? We are to be like Him in every respect. How do we know what I should be? What should I, what should I become? Look at the King. Look at the King that He has appointed to rule over you. That's what you're to become. That's whose image you're to be conformed into. If we have the Spirit of the Lord, who has also rushed upon us like He rushed on the people in Acts 2, shouldn't we also be people who grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Shouldn't that be how people describe the followers of Christ who meet at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa. Brothers and sisters, what king are you following? Who are you emulating? If Christ, then what if strategic thinking, energy and enthusiasm, independent thinking, and ambition wasn't the direction that He's leading His church in. Listen, we all love a good vision statement. 
We all love a good strategy, a good four-bullet-point outline of where a church is going. But what if the outline was grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? What if that was the strategy? Some of us, maybe not all, but some of us might be disappointed. What kind of strategy is that? It's one that's following after its king. That's what he came as. That's what he left his spirit to you to be modeled after. It's great to have plans. But what kind of leader are we wanting to follow? Perhaps we should wonder that if we, as his people, are not being conformed into his image, if you're doing a survey of your life and you're not seeing peacefulness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if you're not seeing those things growing over time, maybe you're following the wrong thing. Maybe it's not actually Christ who is your king. We're going to pray and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But we're going to renew our covenant, our desire to follow Christ as our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for what it means to us, for all that You do in it, through it, to work in us, to conform us into the image of Christ. I pray that we would be not only satisfied, but thrilled, enthralled with the King that You have placed over us. That our goal as Your people would be to be conformed into His image. People who are loving, who are peaceful, who are patient, who are kind, who are gentle, who are faithful, who are self-controlled. We pray that that would inform the words we say, thoughts we think, the motivations of our heart. Would You conform all of it where there are sins hiding in there we know are not in accordance with the image of Christ, would you bring those to the surface and allow us to confess them and repent from them? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.